Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to have with me today Dr. Kevin Blackburn to tell us all about his book titled The Comfort Women of Singapore in History and Memory, published by the National University of Singapore Press in 2022. Um, This book takes a subject that um, in some senses is quite well known, the uh, euphemism term comfort women uh, of the Japanese military using women for sex work during the Second World War throughout the territory that the Japanese military conquered and occupied. Um, And this is a subject that is particularly well known, for example, in the context of Korean women, both in Korea and throughout that wider territory. Um, And it's become something of a political movement and certainly a political issue between South Korea and Japan today, starting in the 1990s. Um, What this book looks at, however, is this... um, institution, I suppose, in Singapore and asks a whole bunch of questions about why we don't see the same sort of memory and people coming forward in Singapore, despite the kind of clear historical facts that this happened in Singapore too. So this is a really um, important, I think, historical contribution to understand kind of what actually happened in Singapore and how it's been remembered since and why. So, Kevin, I'm very pleased to welcome you to the show to tell us about your book. Okay. Thank you, Miranda. Um, I'm an historian, and I work at uh, the National Institute of Education, which is part of um, Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. Um, I decided to write this book because there was a real danger that these women would literally disappear from history. I was inspired by actually a novelist, um, Jing Jing Li, actually, and she wrote a, a book, uh, a, a work of fiction called How We Disappeared. And it was about uh, um, the comfort women of Singapore and how they had disappeared into history. And I noticed that uh, basically the book was published in 2019, that this was probably um an indication of what was happening uh, in reality, actually. It was an excellent novel, um, but it was a work of fiction. So I decided that, you know, I would prove that these women did exist because there's been many um, kind of doubts about the existence of these women because they never did come forward to give their stories in the 1990s when the comfort women issue became an international controversy. And there also there was never any kind of um, explanation about why they didn't come forward Uh, so I essentially wanted to tackle those two questions one was you know why 
they didn't come forward and also their existence because essentially uh, they've taken their stories to their graves, really. Um, you know, even the youngest ones, you know, in their teens now would be in their mid-90s, actually. So effectively, um, these women have kept a silence and uh, they've taken, you know, the silence to, to their graves. Very few of them, if, if none of them, I would imagine, would still be alive. Mm. Thank you for raising kind of the two key questions um, of the book and explaining a little bit sort of what the stakes are really in investigating them. Um, but before we kind of get into some of the answers to those questions, uh, obviously, you've just kind of alluded to one of one of the challenges of researching this topic, right? That people are not coming forward and that it's now essentially out of living memory. Um, but there's a lot of other sort of challenges around methodology, definitions, ethics for researching these two questions that you've raised. So before we get into your answers, could you tell us a bit about how you navigated those challenges? Yes, uh, doing the research is a challenge in itself, um, but also you know, uh, ethical considerations are a challenge too. Uh, we can look at these, uh, you know, quite clearly actually in terms of, you know, just terminology. In, in a way, comfort women, comfort stations are just euphemisms uh, used by the, the Japanese military to describe the, you know, sex slaves, which the women were, and also to describe the places where they worked, um, which were places of sexual enslavement. Uh, so, you know, one starts off with, you know, these euphemisms that you know, represent a horrible reality. Um, and one has to kind of um, make sure that, uh, you know, these euphemisms are understood as such. So at the beginning of the book, I, I explained this, and um, there is a convention of putting in inverted commas, uh, around comfort women and uh, around comfort stations. Uh, and I, I do do that for the book uh, out of um, you know, respect for the suffering of these women uh, because the Japanese military called them comfort women and called their, their places of enslavement uh, comfort stations, but they were, they were anything but that. And with methodology, uh, another difficult issue too uh, one relies a lot on oral history testimony um, of you know many women who uh, knew other women who were comfort women. Um, it's very hard to get close to uh, women who were comfort women because usually they've decided already um, that they're you know they're going to keep this issue private. Uh, so when you know journalists or researchers uh, are, are lucky to actually hear that comfort woman exists, usually, you know, one has to kind of obey the instructions of, you know, one's ethics, which is basically that, you know, if these women don't want their stories or don't want to be interviewed, um, and that's often the case uh, because there's a stigma around any kind of sex work, really, uh, one has to basically, you know, uh, keep, you know, to those considerations. In terms of, you um, Methodology, yeah, with oral history, um, yeah, it is a an area where it's often criticised because um, memory is reconstructed in a sense. When one recalls something, one is kind of reconstructing it. So uh, there's not a lot of you know kind of consistency that one finds uh, that we see in 
archival evidence. You know, so usually you have to corroborate your oral history sources, you know, quite uh, meticulously, uh, preferably with archival sources, uh, because there are always uh, um, individuals who want to deny the existence of uh, comfort women in uh, certain areas or whatever. Um, usually, the the the, the people who want to do this, the people who are perhaps called the right-wing nationalists in Japan, uh, they tend to see the comfort women as little more than paid prostitutes. Uh, and uh, the lives of these women usually aren't documented in archival evidence. Archival evidence gives us a good idea about how the system was set up, um, but it doesn't really tell us so much about the lives of these women. So one really has to go to oral history to find out the lives of these women and how they tell the story of their lives. Um, in the case of Singapore, uh, it's the Korean women, it's the Indonesian women who actually have told um, other people, journalists, um, researchers, about what it was like to be a comfort woman in Singapore. As I said, uh, the testimony doesn't come from the local women, but we know from other oral history testimony that uh, you know there were these women that were abducted and taken into comfort stations. There were other women who were working already in the sex industry who were tricked or coerced into the, the comfort stations as well. So we rely a lot upon um, uh, evidence to prove that they exist, uh, that is both oral history and archival. So it is well corroborated because it is one of those issues that uh, generate a great deal of controversy. And as I said before, um, if you look at, you know, many perceptions of, you know, what happened, um, yeah, the, one could, you know, easily come to the, the you know, wrong conclusion that these women never really existed because they never came forward when uh, in the 1990s many comfort women in other Asian societies came forward. So, you know, it has been quite a, a difficult book to write from the perspective of methodological, definitional and ethical considerations. Thanks. Well, I'm glad you've um, explained the, those kind of overlapping challenges and also some of the ways that you work to nevertheless find this corroborating um, evidence. So that kind of allows us to go nicely into some of the answers that you come up with in the book, um, building on some of the information you've just given us. Who were the Singaporean comfort women? How, to what extent were their backgrounds similar to comfort women of other nationalities, like the Korean women you spoke of? Um, kind of who were these women that haven't come forward? I'll give the context first, like I do in the book. Uh, Singapore was essentially regarded by the members of the Japanese military as a virtual sexual paradise for them, actually. Uh, there were so many women of different uh, ethnic and national nationalities, uh, such as, you know, there are women from Taiwan, there are women from Indonesia, uh, there are women from China, uh, there were women, you know, from Malaysia as well. Uh, and then amongst the local women, uh, there were women who were Eurasian, there were women who were Indian, uh, there were women who were Chinese, and there were women who who were Malay, as well as some captured European women who were part of the Japanese military sex industry. So if one looks at this context, one sees that there's a lot of women who are uh, not from Singapore, not locals. Uh, so what has happened is that, you know, yes, you, you do have the testimony from 
the women, many, much of the testimony comes from you know, basically the Korean women. I think I forgot to mention the Korean women also here, of course, they're the largest, the largest number. So a lot of testimony comes from the Korean women about their experiences. Um, and you know, one can look at that, and then one can look at other sources that one has uh, about you know what the local population saw in terms of the local women's experiences. And uh, yeah, in in many cases, they work side by side. You know, you know, you had Indonesian women working, you know, next to um, to the women from China and the women from Korea. Uh, Japanese women as well, actually. So, you know, by looking at uh, the different testimony from women from various nationalities, one gets a, a fairly good idea about w- what life was like in the comfort stations in terms of sexual slavery, in terms of basically how they were treated. Uh, there is some variety, of course, in terms of the, the way they were managed by um, the comfort station managers or whatever who could vary some could be better than others but uh, the system itself was so was so kind of um you know oppressive that uh, women often you know had little agency and were in a difficult situation it was not uncommon to you know on particularly on holidays for these women to actually you know serve up to 30 to 50 men in, in one of the comfort stations um, and then of course uh, you know we, we had uh, you know women who were you know basically contracting uh, sexual diseases uh, from you know this uh, you know kind of situation they were in and then actually you had pregnancies as well uh that uh, you know the women you know basically contracted from the industry so yeah they lived in a kind of state of, kind of almost like captivity in a sense actually um their, their where they could go was limited um some of course had more agency than others um but by and large um yeah the conditions of many of these women uh, was similar to, you know, say Korean women who were in Burma, or you know, Indonesian women uh, who were also in Singapore, but also you know, in Indonesia and other parts of of the empire. So, surprisingly, some of the women, when they give their testimony, like there's a Japanese woman who, you know, who talk, talks of, you know, her time in Malaysia and Singapore. And uh, particularly Malaysia in Kota Kinabalu, actually. So she she describes how you know the, the they they were kind of kind of sisters in a way because the, when she fell ill from some sexual disease, she was looked after by um, one of the local women. You know, so this is in Malaysia, um, but in Singapore you you do have those type of circumstances as well, where there's some solidarity amongst uh, the women, you know, particularly the ones from the same nationalities, of course, but. Uh, Many Singapore women were sent overseas uh, to Java, to Malaysia. Uh, so, yeah, from this, you know, we we know generally that they did work, you know, with other women. Um, but still, they, you know, because they knew each other, because um, yeah, in in some respects, they they took you know a fairly large number of people from the same the same place. Like you know, they had some Cantonese. Uh, sing-song girls or prostitutes that they sent to Taiping uh, from Chinatown, Singapore. And uh, they were quite uh, quite cohesive as a group, actually, uh, when they were working in Taiping. Uh, their testimony is actually given by someone who was uh, a visitor, you know, 
just uh, dropping off uh, goods from the town, a Chinese man actually, who could obviously speak Cantonese. So they describe the relentless, you know, um, kind of nature of the sex industry um, that they were put into. And uh, it was very different from what they experienced in Singapore when they were part of the sex industry, you know, things like that. They described that they had basically no rest at all. Um, the Japanese men there believed that, uh, you know, the menstruation period uh, was, you know, was the time when the, the female, you know, uh, sex drive was, was abnormally high. So usually they would stop during this period when they were menstruating. Um, but for the Japanese men, they just continued on. So their conditions were far from ideal and uh, they did have little autonomy. But, you know, from some stories, they do kind of illustrate, you know, that there were times when if opportunities arose, they could, you know, have, you know, or greater autonomy. Mm. And what were the backgrounds of these women? Where where were they kind of coming from before they were coerced or kidnapped into um, this sex slavery? Kind of where you, you mentioned earlier the ages of them now mid 90s. So that would imply they were really quite young when this happened. Um, what can we know about the backgrounds of these Singaporean women? Yes, it's interesting actually. If you look at the the, the fiction, the, the the image that comes out of the you know the novel How We Disappeared, um, yeah, the, the author focuses on on basically uh, a group, one group of women who were coerced, and that is the um, the teenage virgins from the rural areas of Singapore. Basically, the Japanese would uh, you know come into a village and they would just abduct young women. Um, and bring them into the sex industry. You know, sometimes they just simply rape them, and for a short while, short while, they would uh, basically just you know ki- kidnap them, and then they would you know be gone, you know, let free after a week. But others, you know, certainly went to comfort stations. So you have the abducted, you know, teenage virgins, um, but also in the Chinatown area, in the the brothel areas, they 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 used you know coercion. Uh, as well uh, with the existing um, uh, women who were part of the sex industry, mainly Cantonese prostitutes who were uh, dominant in this kind of trade, actually. So these women, they don't get as much sympathy as the teenage virgins, but the Japanese did, you know, use, the Japanese military did use this similar tactics, but more and more, more kind of, uh, you know, trickery using promising uh, you know, kind of a better life or whatever but uh, most of them knew that that wasn't going to be the case so that basically there were elements of coercion uh, even for the women who did work in the sex industry I, I kind of document this with the life of one woman who was quite uh, a strong woman uh, Ho Kwai Min actually she was already what's called a high class prostitute in in Chinatown, and she skillfully evaded, you know, several attempts by the Japanese military uh, to actually inf- coerce her into the comfort women system. She preferred to stay very much in in the Chinatown, in the the existing sex industry that she'd been working in already. It's interesting looking at the variety uh, of experiences, but in many ways they're similar to elsewhere where you do have you know young women being abducted you have young women who are being tricked uh, and you do have women from the 
prostitution uh, and sex industry who are, you know, coerced. And so one finds this not just in Singapore, but also in, in other countries. So that's you know, how it, it went. And obviously, if we're trying to understand um, why women chose not to come forward, um, understanding what happened to them during the war is a key part of that story, but also what happened to them afterwards. So what did happen to the comfort women in Singapore, both those of Singaporean nationality and those um, from other places that have been brought by the Japanese? What, what happened to them immediately after the war? Yes, it's interesting, actually. In, in a way, Singapore is very similar uh, to what happened with uh, women from Korea, women from other places like Indonesia, too. Um, they at at the end of the war, uh, they they feared going back home because they had been involved in you know the sex industry. Of course, you know it, it hadn't been their choice or whatever. Um, but nonetheless, because they had you know uh, been involved in this, there was a certain stigma, uh, you know, and shame that they felt quite strongly. The Indonesian women uh, were interviewed after the war because there was a search for them um, by the the new Indonesian government uh, and they, that, that became quite public and you know that they, they gave their their testimony you know to to journalists and people looking for them and they said that you know um, you know we, we've become bad you know they use the patriarchal language you know um, it's not our fault because the Japanese did it and uh, they say that the, you know there's no way they could ever go home to their families uh, in in Indonesia and in Java. Uh, so this is similar to what happens with the Korean woman too, actually. Already in Singapore, the, the people of Singapore, the local population are rather unsympathetic, actually, uh, to the, the, the women who are from Korea. And they just simply see them as, as you know, Japanese prostitutes. So they, they, they don't have any sympathy for them. And then, you know, when the Korean women go home, uh, they also, you know, have, you know, the stigma uh, to face if, if they ad- admit what they're doing. And that's been fairly well documented. And, you know, the Korean women, you know, kept silent for a long time, Japanese women too, actually. So in the case of local women in Singapore, uh, it, it's 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 very difficult for them actually because uh, you know, Singapore is quite a small place and uh, many would many people in the villages would know what happened to these women who were coerced by the Japanese into the comfort women system. So what happens is that these women tend to stay in prostitution, mainly street walking or whatever. Uh, many of them are quite young, so they're under eighteen. Um, and the government is able to actually, you know, round them up and put them into uh, a home for girls, actually rehabilitating uh, underage prostitutes. So the older ones, you know, they, they can't do this, but uh, they, they set up this kind of girls training school. And uh, the idea is to actually do what they did before the war um, when the British had, you know, the colonial sex industry, uh, which was basically that they would go to you know, the home for girls and they would be trained you know, to be you know, kind of maids or potential wives. They would, they would take courses. Um, they would learn you know, about housekeeping. They would learn sewing. They would learn reading and all these things. So when uh, Chinese men in particular, when 
when they're looking for a bride um, and they couldn't afford one to come from China, um, the girls from this home uh, would easily fit the bill in terms of you know a bride for them. They were quite young, of course. Uh, so this is what happened to many of the women, uh, particularly the young women under 18, is that they, they, they were rounded up and put into the girls' training uh, home, actually, at Pasapanjang in Singapore. So most of them would have, you know, eventually left when they became eighteen or, or married out of the, out of the institution, uh, and assimilated back into society. Um, they had very little sympathy from the colonial government, who simply wanted them rounded up. Even though the colonial government knew very well that many of these women, uh, you know, were forced into this situation, uh, they didn't volunteer for it, and uh, still they just simply wanted them rounded up and out of sight, um, and these women were in embarrassment and also the military the british military uh was kind of you know uh very very much in favor of doing this because you know they believed that these were the these women you know street walking uh with no you know kind of um regular brothel that, uh, that they could go to they believed that they were you know infecting their own troops with venereal disease so yeah there was a great stigma around this uh, um, experience and not much sympathy at all actually and that's that's the way it has it had continued for a, a very long time after the war uh, there was great debate uh, about you know this problem in the 40s and then the 50s there's no much, there's no debate at all because many of these women are no longer working in the sex industry because of age i suppose or illness uh, or they've, they've they've kind of you know, basically assimilated or, or merged back into society and are very silent uh, about it, you know, because in Korea you have the same situation where they, they never told their families, they never told their husbands. And you see this in Malaysia too, actually. Uh, it's it's quite a, a predictable post-war pattern that's not unique to Singapore at all. So, you know, that's about it in terms of, you know, what happens in the 1940s. Well, and so you talk about in the book, um, obviously, that then this is not something that's talked about for a while. Um, but of course, once women begin to come forward in Korea and Japan in the 1990s, um, this topic kind of reemerges. Uh, and you look at the sort of narrative that comes out from Singapore's sort of reaction to this um, and argue that this... The, the way that Singaporean leaders react um, has an impact for Singaporean women coming forward. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about kind of, um, we now understand sort of the immediate post-war response from government and sort of their, what they wanted. Um, but what kind of was the narrative in the 1990s um, around comfort women in general, around comfort women in Singapore and from Singapore? Um, sort of what, what was that? while it was coming up in South Korea and Japan. Yes, so this was, yeah, when the international controversy broke, when the the handful of Korean comfort women decided to sue the Japanese government in December 1991. Uh, So in early 1992, uh, the comfort women issue, which many people had never heard about, of course, there were always, you know, you know, few stories about it or whatever before but uh, you know it became an international controversy in, in uh, December 91 and then into you know 1992 so at this time you know this 
controversy and, and the Korean women coming out encourage many women in other Asian countries uh, coming forward as well, actually. Um, they had uh, support from um, various feminist movements, uh, NGOs. E- even in Malaysia, you had initially the, the political you know, kind of parties, UMNO Youth and, uh, you know, had the MCA being quite supportive. Um, governments really didn't know what to do. Some governments, you know, found it easier to, to support the women. Um, but, you know, many governments really, you know, were, you know, in a situation uh, where, you know, relations with Japan would be affected. In Malaysia, uh, the government effectively shut down the, you know, the, 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 the collect you know the collection of testimony um, by its own you know coalition parties. Uh, in other cases, yeah, governments really didn't do that much. It was really up to the NGOs actually and, and the women's movements you know to do something. Uh, you had journalists, of course, who were who were keen uh, on on breaking the stories. Um, so in Singapore, you had you know, basically the same thing. You had a government that, you know, really didn't want, you know, this controversy to spill over into um, Singapore society. You know, you had the Northeast Asian history wars between, say, China and Japan over the past, and these were really divisive. So you know, the government has ha- had that view for quite some time in Singapore, actually. So, you know, with the comfort women, there wasn't really much intervention um, by the government. You know, it wasn't sim- it wasn't really because the Japanese uh, mill embassy put any pressure on them like they, they did to the Malaysian, you know, government in Kuala Lumpur. It was simply that uh, civil society was something quite ordered in Singapore and controlled by the government. And at the time, you, you, you had the statement by Lee Kuan Yew, who actually sympathized with the Korean women in his statement that he made in February 1992 in Japan. He was not prime minister then. He had finished being prime minister, but he was still very well respected. He was in government. He was in cabinet. So he basically said that, you know, you know, that you know Japan should reckon with the comfort women, but he never actually said that there were Singapore comfort women. He simply said that you know it was the Korean women uh, who saved the chastity of many Singapore girls. You know, which implied that maybe you know there were no you know local comfort women actually. So you know this was quite a big statement at the time, uh, covered quite well in in Singapore's press. Uh, there were journalists trying to you know break stories or find stories about local comfort women but you know it was obvious that the government didn't have much sympathy uh, for for them and uh, you know the society itself you know at that time had uh, you know very hypocritical attitudes to women who worked in the sex industry uh, even people who, women who had actually ceased working in the sex industry there was you know a great deal of stigma um, attitudes were very Victorian uh, and uh, basically you know even women who were you know basically working in the, the kind of regulated uh, sex industry of Singapore you know didn't talk about it at all to their uh, to their neighbors or whatever because you know there was this fear of being ostracized and you know shamed they're much similar to what happened in the 40s with the local women uh, who actually were known to be working in the Japanese sex industry so what happened was that yeah basically you have this kind of patriarchal oppression of these women continuing in Singapore uh, and yeah it's no surprise that the women decided you know that they would remain quiet actually you had you know I think one um, 
government member of parliament who actually even said this. He said that basically it seems to be that the the, the women who were comfort women in Singapore have chosen to remain quiet and also the government, you know, itself, you know, um, has chosen not to take up this issue. So through this, um, the window of opportunity of these women coming forward and uh, basically, you know, writing, you know, that page of forgotten women's history in uh, Singapore's national history never recurred. And it's pretty, it's a lasting regret. Uh, having worked here since the early 90s, I always thought it would happen at some point. And then by 2019, uh, when I started to actually write the book itself, I, I knew that it would never happen. And, uh, you know, it's still my opinion that it would never happen at all. Even in Malaysia, uh, despite the initial encouragement, even then, the women that did come forward uh, actually used not their real names. Uh, they used just names like Madam X or X or Madam, Madam Lim. Only one ever came forward. Uh, this was after the government tried to suppress it. Uh, and uh, she was Rosalind Saw, actually. And uh, that was in 1994, after the government had been you know, basically telling its coalition, you know, parties uh, and p activists in them to, to not pursue this matter because it might damage relations with Japan. So, yeah, it's not surprising, I suppose, given that in Malaysia you had, you know, that type of, you know, kind of help, you know, initial help anyway, uh, that was shut down that, you know, even in Singapore, it, nothing happened in terms of no women came forward. And it's been that way ever since. Mm. But of course, um, as you mentioned right at the beginning of this interview, um, there has been some discussion of it in Singapore, if not through women coming forward with their own personal experiences, but um, representations and mem memories um, in popular culture. And you mentioned, obviously, this uh, 2019 novel, uh, but the book explores sort of other representations of comfort women in Singapore and from Singapore um, in Singapore and popular culture more than just the one book. So I was wondering if you could maybe tell us about some of those representations. Yes, the rep representations do kind of reflect, you know, what's going on in society. Initially, when uh, the first representations happen of the comfort women, they're, they're you know, on Chinese TV, they're, 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 they're kind of dramas that depict, you know, Taiwanese women who come to Singapore. So that, that's the early, you know, 1994, 90s uh, kind of representation. And then gradually we get to see, you know, theatre productions and we get to see uh, some television dramas that, you know, include local women as comfort women. This is after about, you know, this is about, you know, early 21st century. So, yeah, there's uh, a, a, a very good play, actually, uh, that sums up the, the, the problem of the comfort women. It's about a, a Malay comfort woman. It's called Hayati, Hayat. Um, um, life of Hayati, and it's a story about you know a Malay lady who young woman actually who is coerced into the comfort woman system, and uh, it's actually a very interesting play because it's a critique of the society that you know allowed these women to you know go into the comfort woman system, uh, and then also when you know the war had finished they ostracized them, so it was you know uh, a kind of critique of Singapore society 
after the war too, why women were you know oppressed by this patriarchy. Um, you know, you see the the protagonist in the uh, play, uh, and uh, she is uh, kind of you know struggling with her own you know kind of uh, problems as you know as as a woman who is a a young woman going through uh, domestic violence, actually. So uh, there's a kind of parallel between, you know, her role in Singapore society where she's experiencing some kind of domestic violence, and then there's a parallel between uh, the comfort woman uh, in the play who's experiencing, uh, you know, kind of the the horror of this type of, you know, kind of patriarchal nightmare. So yeah, that that's you know perhaps. Uh, the strongest critique of it, um, but it, it is in popular culture, and local women are, are represented in popular culture. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's something that's not that strong in a way. Um, but yeah, looking at you know its representation, it does make you think about you know yes, there seems to be an awareness that there were local comfort women uh, because it's in the popular culture. It's in the plays, you know, it's on TV. But actually, in a way, these plays and, and theatre productions, they, they don't happen that often. But the fact that they're there does illustrate that there is some consciousness amongst some part of the population um, that these women did exist and they were silenced uh, by the society, I would say, you know, and also, you know, the the government of that society, I suppose. Mm. Well, and your book certainly um, helps with that as well, understanding um, who the women were, what happened to them, and then how they've been remembered and silenced since. Um, which sort of brings me, I suppose, to uh, my last question, uh, and probably only a little bit about the book. Uh, it has just come out. Obviously, it's something you've been working on for a while. Um, but is there anything that you might have your eye on to work on next that you could give our listeners a sneak preview of? Oh, with the Singapore Comfort Women, I initially thought that actually it might be better to actually write a book about both Malaysian and Singapore women together. Um, but I decided to just settle on Singapore. Uh, but I had still, you know, the material to look at Malaysia. And uh, I, I've, I've got a, you know, an academic article coming out in the Women's History Review as part of a special issue on the comfort women in, in many countries in Asia, you know, Vietnam as well. We don't hear anything about the Vietnamese comfort women, uh, as well as Indonesia and the Philippines and, and other parts of Asia. So, yeah, I, I contributed something on a uh, comparative study of comfort women uh, in Malaysia with the comfort women of Singapore. You know, I, I had thought perhaps maybe to move on to Malaysia, um, but, yeah, after having gone through so many difficulties of getting the book out, uh, uh, just dealing with Singapore, I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll kind of just, you know, <laughs> just uh, not, you know, do a book, but actually just do a comparative article that deals with Malaysia because they share a common, a common history. The two countries actually the same many, same type of people, um, and also you know their history is 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 history that overlaps in a sense. You know, so yeah, that that's the next thing actually. I I, I don't know if I'll ever have the you know the strength to actually uh, go into the study of Malaysian comfort women. Um, in terms of you know the way I, I looked at Singapore society and its you know it, its its comfort women, but uh, you know that was something that is coming out anyway. So you know I'll, I'll see actually because yeah basically I've tended to write 
um, about Malaysia and Singapore together. Um, but having gone through the the difficulties, the, the the controversial issues, the emotional traumas uh, that this this issue presents. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I want to, to do it again. With actually, this time would be you know much more field work. You know, traveling through through Malaysia, but uh, I think it, it's still you know an issue that needs you know a kind of book length you know treatment. The, the comfort women of Malaysia. I'm just you know surprised that one could you know actually achieve getting a book out on the comfort women of Singapore, given. Uh, all the issues that come up in terms of you know the methodology, in terms of evidence, in terms of ethics, and in terms of all these things that make such a book on such an issue uh, so difficult to write. But I, I've had you know many many people help you know through linguistically, through um, you know research as well. So I, I mentioned many of them in the book. I'm very much indebted to them uh, as well because what has happened is that the comfort women of Singapore. Uh, have they've, it's been proven that they've existed they they did exist but they've kept their privacy i think one of the reviewers of the book uh said this actually that this is what it achieves in a sense it proves that these women exist for you know for 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 history for prosperity uh, but also you know they, they've they've gone to their their graves without you know going through the you know kind of traumas of reliving uh their 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 past you know, experiences of the war, and uh, they've kept their privacy. So I, I'm quite happy that the book has achieved this. And initially, I thought you know it would be somewhat criticised because you know basically you know and the towards the end I don't you know basically have you know reproductions of an interview with the Sing- a Singapore comfort woman. But from the book, you get the sense that. These women did exist. There's more than enough evidence, but they've chosen to remain silent. Well, um, thank you very much for sharing uh, these insights with us. And as a reminder to our listeners, the book is titled The Comfort Women in Sing- of Singapore in History and Memory from the National University of Singapore Press. Um, Kevin, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Miranda.